Hare Krishna. Welcome, dear devotees. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, it's our great honor and privilege to welcome you on the GBC SPT platform. And for the past almost more than a week, you have been watching a series celebrating Karthik, where we have been featuring and reading and diving deeper into the Krishna book, chapter by chapter. And today it's my great honor and privilege to welcome Her Grace Radha Devi on this platform. Hare Krishna Radha Prabhu, please accept Krishna. my humble obeisances. It's such an honor to welcome you on this platform. You're such an inspiration. And um, I was just telling our guests and our um, viewers that we have been discussing uh, from the Krishna book chapter by chapter. And today we have Radha Prabhu that will be shedding more light and helping us dive deeper into the 14th chapter of Krishna book, which is the killing of Denukasur. Uh, Radha Prabhu has been serving our ISKCON community as the Vaishnavi minister. And she has brought so many resources and empowered so many Vaishnavis in their services all over the world. Her uh, major contribution, I would think, is in the field of um, protection for the Vaishnavis in terms of helping them understand, find resources um, in the area of domestic violence or any kind of violence. She's been protecting our community um, from any such legal implications when uh, there is a breach in um, conduct. So thank you so much for this amazing service that you've been doing and continue to do. We're very grateful to have you on this platform and we really look forward to hearing from you. So without further ado, I request you to please share some realizations on the 14th chapter. Om Agyana Timurandasya Gyanangana Shalakaya Chakshor Unmilitamina Tasmai Shri Guruve Namaha Vancha Kalpatarubyas Chakripasindubya Eva Chapatitanam Pavanivya Vaishnavibya Namonamaha Shri Krishna Titanya Prabhu Nichananda Shri Ruedagadadhar Shivasiri Gora Bhaktabrinda Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare Well, thank you so much, Govinda Priya Prabhu, for such a nice welcome. And I, I just want to express my appreciation also for this series. Um, I know that I personally am struggling a little bit <clears throat> with this pandemic and not, you know, getting as much association, you know, or kirtan <laughs> as I would hope to. And these online programs are really, you know, saving, I think, many of us from discouragement and loneliness. So thank you, thank so, you much. so much. I accept that on behalf of the GBC SPT. It's a wonderful team that's working behind the scenes. Yes. So, so many wonderful devotees. We do so many wonderful things. <laughs> so I'm going to start, you know, just by looking at this narrative, what happened, um, and then kind of want to break that down into some things that maybe we can use in our own spiritual growth. Um, it, 
the mercy Krishna shows in manifesting these pastimes um, in Vrindavan, it, it, it always kind of blows me away because these pastimes are so relatable, right? You know, we have friends and relatives and relationships. And then, you know, just in case we need a little drama and adventure, there's killing the demons. And so no matter, you know, at what level of spiritual development we are, <clears throat> or even what, you know, what age or, you know, intellectual capacity we have, Krishna always gives something that, you know, everyone, there's always a way for everyone to connect with him. And these pastimes of killing the demons, you know, they're very attractive to the mind. And simply by remembering these pastimes, you know, we can make spiritual advancement just by thinking, you know, of Balaram killing Denukasura, you know, we can make advancement. And, and that's a lot of mercy because in this age of Kali, it is hard to focus the mind. It is. So when I went back to look at this pastime in preparation for the class, one thing that struck me is that it's a very short pastime, very simple, straightforward, but there is so much that can be churned out of it. There's so much that we can use in our own, you know, spiritual growth. So, you know, how does this start? Let's set the stage. Um, we have Krishna. He's recently been promoted to herding cows instead of calves, a little more responsibility, a little more grown up, um, but he still is engaging in the same way with his community. Um, he and Balaram and the cowherd boys, they, they do this service together. You know, they all go out into the forest, they entertain each other, they interact with each other. And um, there's so much love and affection in their relationship. Um, one thing that, that always strikes me about this is how they exchange service, right? So Krishna is serving Balaram, his elder brother, right? Um, he massages the calves and the feet of Balaram. He fans Balaram. Um, he brings him water to drink, right? And so in this way, you know, Krishna shows that while he accepts service, he also wants to serve his devotees. He also, this, this whole thing of love and Krishna and the devotees, it's a reciprocation. It goes both ways. You know, we want to learn to love Krishna. Krishna already loves us. <laughs> you know, we just want, we need to learn to love him so that we can have this reciprocation, right? And then the cowherd boys are also, you know, serving Krishna. Um, it's described that, that each cowherd boy, you know, Krishna manifests in so many forms that each cowherd boy can take Krishna's head in his lap, massage his feet, fan him, perform this service, right? So they're working together as a community to do a service. And Krishna's unlimited potency allows each one of those cowherd boys, just like the gopis in the rasa dance, each one of those cowherd boys to have a personal exchange, personal loving moment with Krishna, right? And for me, that's very inspiring because you know, I'm full of self-doubt <laughs> and I, I'm always wondering, is, is there really a place for me? You know, does Krishna really care about me? Um, and, and this is a reminder that Krishna loves each individual, right? Krishna's not the rock star who, you know, stands before the multitude and says, yes, you can worship me. He's actually having intimate exchange with every soul. And that's what 
you know, that's what our goal is. That's what all of this sadhana, you know, um, austerity, service, you know, it's all aimed at allowing us to reciprocate that intimately with the Supreme Person. So that, that we have this community of devotees, they're having loving exchanges and the gopas come to Krishna and say, you know, there's this forest and it's got these amazing sweet fruits, but no one can eat them because there are these demons living there. And all we get is the aroma, but that aroma is so sweet. And Prabhupada tells us that unlike, you know, a material relationship, the boys are saying, you know, Krishna Balaram, will you please go kill the demons? But the, the motive, the motive is for Krishna to manifest, for Balaram to manifest their potency, you know, to, to have this, this demonstration of spiritual power. And so it's not a material. It's not just that they want to eat these fruits, but they want to see Balaram and Krishna engage in this particular way. And they're very respectful. You know, if you think it's a good idea, would you like to go and do this? And of course, Krishna and Balaram want to please their devotees, so they go. And one of the things that, you know, jumps right out of this pastime is that it's one of the rare pastimes where Krishna does not take the lead in killing the demons. You know, so Balaram is the one who goes into the forest. He begins to shake these trees so that the fruits will drop down, become available. Uh, and that noise attracts Denukasura who immediately comes to see who has challenged him, right? And it's described in the Krishna book and in the 10th canto that uh, th these demons, they ate people. You know, they <laughs> you say, okay, he's an ass demon, you know, why should we be so frightened of an ass? But, you know, he's actually a demon. He, you know, they eat people. And not only are people too scared to go in there, but even animals and birds are afraid to go into this forest. So no one can appreciate these fruits. No one is tasting these fruits. Even Dana and his associates are not tasting these fruits. So it's not even that they're trying to keep their fruits from for themselves. They're just mean and miserly and don't want to share with anyone. Um, so Dana comes and, and he kicks Balaram with his hind feet, which, you know, ordinarily would kill a person. And, and Balaram, of course, is unaffected. And Danakasura kicks him again. Balaram grabs the demon by the hooves, whirls him around, you know, like a child playing with a rope and throws him into the top of a tree. And simply by that whirling around, Danakasura's life is ended, right? And so we see how in so many ways, when Krishna interacts with the demons, there are these cliffhanger moments. Is Krishna in danger? Is he going to overcome? You know, everyone gets on the edge of their seat because they don't want anything to happen to Krishna. Right? But Balaram in this pastime is not like that at all, right? It's just one, two, three, it's over, right? Uh, so this potency, Balaram's potency is so present and so obvious, you know? And then again, as usual, all of the demon's associates come and try to kill. And now Krishna is joining with Balaram and they're both whirling these demons around, throwing them into the tops, tops of the trees. And this, this whole, you know, battle <laughs> is so disruptive. It's so destructive. Not only are these demons being killed, but all these trees are being knocked down. You know, it, it causes like a domino effect and, and all the trees are falling down. It's a big mess, right? But this is Krishna and Balaram. So even though it's a big mess, it's a beautiful scene. 
you know, it's described in Krishna book how um, the, the demons' bodies are bluish and the blood, you know, flowing from them that is reddish and this red and blue makes this beautiful picture um, because everything associated with the Lord, you know, is, is absolute transcendental and lovely. So even just thinking about that picture of the demons on the forest floor, you know, that, that can uplift our hearts and engage our minds in devotional service, help us to have Krishna and Balaram appear in our minds. And then of course, everyone is able to come, right? And enjoy these sweet fruits. So what are, what are some of the deeper meanings of this pastime? And pastimes like this, as simple as they are, um, they have a lot to tell us. Right. And so we can only touch in this class, we can only touch on a few. And my limited realization only allows me to see a few. Right. There are so many. And that's why we can come back to these pastimes over and over and still be engaged um, because they will teach us things. You know, Prabhupada will reveal things to us that maybe we didn't see in our first reading. So we see these devotees and Krishna and Balaram, they have been working together as a community. Um, that there's room for everyone in that community. Everybody gets a personal interaction. And we can ask ourselves, what, what is the meaning of this demon? Who, who is Denakasura? You know, um, it's not necessarily that I'm supposed to take away from this that if a, you know, a demon in the form of an ass ever comes, I should pray to Balaram. Like, that's good advice, <laughs> but it's unlikely to happen in my life. So what am I supposed to be taking home from this? So one of the things that Danikasura represents is a material mentality, right? When we look at the world through material vision, we become an ass, we become overburdened. We are struggling like anything, you know, for temporary results. We are foolishly wasting our energy. So, so this is one meaning, you know, Danikasura, that, that Balaram, who is Adi Guru, who is the spiritual master, will destroy our material mindset. You know, and that's a great blessing. Um, Dhanakasura also represents those who cannot understand Vaishnava philosophy and cannot accept it and want to stop others from accepting it. Uh, and again, you know, the spiritual master can overcome this problem. So that's also very nice. But I think for me, the most relevant meaning of Dhanakasura is explained by Radhanath Swami in one of his classes. And it is this, that the Taliban forest represents our hearts, that uh, Dhanakasura represents the demons that reside within our hearts, pride, lust, anger, envy, greed, and illusion. And that the sweet fruits from the palm trees represent our propensities for service to the divine and love for Krishna, right? So that these demons we have within our hearts prevent us from tasting these sweet fruits of love and devotion and service, you know, and the spiritual master in the form of Balaram will come, can come and destroy these demons. For me, um, you know, that's a very meaningful reflection because I do have demons in my heart. In past ages, you know, demons and demigods were 
completely separate categories. You know, they lived in different parts of the universe. And over time, as the ages degrade, we get to Kali Yuga, where we have demoniac impulses and divine impulses within the same heart, you know, that we have demons in our hearts. Um, and so for me, this, this reflection on Balaram destroying the demons in my heart is very important. And one of the first points to leap out, of course, is who does Balaram represent in this? You know, he represents the spiritual master, the Adi Guru. So in order to overcome those demons in my heart, I have to take shelter of the devotee. I have to take shelter of someone who can teach me how to overcome these demons, how to accept Krishna's love and, and manifest my loving propensity for him. So let's maybe break this down in a little more detail. All right. One of the things about the first two ways of looking at this Dinakasura, um, the material-minded person or the envious person who's envious towards devotees, right? Those are pretty easy to see. Krishna gives us this uh, ability to discriminate and, and we do it from the very beginning of our lives. We are constantly in the in this, uh process of accepting and rejecting, accepting and rejecting. I like this, I don't like that, right? Our minds are programmed that way. Um, so it, we generally can observe in others these ass-like tendencies, right? That person is doing this, that person is doing that. Uh, the more difficult task is to, to look at the demons within our own hearts. What am I doing? Um, so we shouldn't get stuck. We shouldn't put a lot of energy into identifying the demons in the external world, right? We have this discrimination so that we can identify what's good for Krishna consciousness, what helps me become Krishna conscious and what doesn't. Um, we need to look at others' limitations or weaknesses to the extent that we need to figure out who we should be associating with and, and in what way we should be associating with them. But after that, you know, it becomes sense gratification, right? Fault finding. One of the, the biggest dangers of fault finding is that it's Vaishnava Aparat and it will destroy your spiritual life. But also important is the fact that fault finding is a big distraction from our own spiritual growth, right? Because that discrimination, that power to say, you know, this is good for Krishna consciousness, this is bad for Krishna consciousness, where that really, really helps us to make advancement is when we start looking at our own heart. Right. That's what where that power is supposed to be directed. You know, what's going on with me? What am I doing? Um, and so we have to ask ourselves the question, right? Am I the ass? Right? Am I the one in the situation who's behaving with a Dinokasura type of mentality? Right. And one of the, the corollaries to this realization that we have to look at what we are doing and you know what our consciousness is like. One of the corollaries is that it's okay to realize that we have these demoniac tendencies. You know, it's essential to realize it because otherwise we can't get rid of it, right? But what we don't want is we don't want to preserve those qualities once we've identified them. So it can be painful to see ourselves clearly, right? But we can be encouraged that seeing ourselves clearly is the first step to getting rid of the anartas, the unwanted things. All right. So one way in which we can be Dana Kusura without 
realizing it, is in how we allow others, encourage others in their Krishna consciousness, right? None of us, nobody listening to this is going to be the kind of person who says, oh, you know, forget Srimad Bhagavatam, don't listen to Prabhupada. You know, we're, if you're listening to this class, you're way past that point. We're not going to say that. Um, but how, how do we welcome people when they first come to Krishna consciousness? How do we encourage others in their service, right? Uh, many times we can be the impediment in somebody else's spiritual life by not making them welcome, by being harsh and critical. Personalism, we're personalists, right? Personalism requires unity and diversity. If you don't have unity and diversity, you cannot be a personalist movement because people are different. They have different propensities. They are going to manifest their service in different ways, right? So whenever I come to the temple, I come to the community of devotees, I interact with the devotee, and I have in my mind one picture of what a devotee looks like, and I kind of look at everybody and see how close they come to that picture, I'm being Dana Kasara, right? So many devotees don't look like what we expect them to look like. And, you know, I'll just give an example from my own life. Um, when I first met the devotees, I was in law school. Um, I really didn't have a favorable impression of the Hare Krishna movement. The only thing I really knew was that they dressed in funny clothes and they harassed people in the airport. You know, so obviously <laughs> that wasn't something I wanted to sign up for. Um, and I also had a drug habit. Okay. So somebody gave me a Bhagavad Gita. I, I read the first, I actually think it was the introduction. I didn't even get to the first chapter. I read the introduction. And I realized that Prabhupada was answering every question I had had. The whole world made sense, you know, through his angle of vision. Uh, and I was really discouraged when I found out that, you know, Prabhupada was the founder of the Hare Krishna movement, because as I said, I, you know, the only thing I knew about the Hare Krishnas was, you know, they harass people in airports. Um, so I, you know, I was on the one hand, very attracted to this knowledge and am wanting to be able to live in this way, but at the same time, not willing to give up, you know, my social status or, you know, whatever I thought I had. And more importantly, not willing to give up my drug habit, right? So when I first started coming to the temple, you know, I wasn't exactly welcome, right? Um, the people that I was introduced to Krishna consciousness, consciousness through were also drug addicts, even though they were devotees, um, you know, and so there was kind of this, do we really want her? You know, she's just gonna be another troublesome, intoxicated person. Uh, and the first time I, I went to the temple, I was asked to leave, you know. So, of course, that made me feel like, okay, there's no place for me in this movement. I don't have to wrestle with how am I going to integrate this philosophy into my life because they don't want me. Easy. Um, but Gunagrai Maharaj, you know, he was the one who reached out and said, no, there is a place for you here. You know, you can do service, even with your anartas, even with your unwanted habits, you know, things that we would like to see change. There's still a place for you here. Right. And, and he did that for so many of us who are in the same situation. And many of us, you know, ultimately overcame those drug habits and, you know, became um, 
much more like what we think a devotee should look like. But even the ones who didn't, they were able to serve the devotees, to serve the deities, to serve Srila Prabhupada. Every person in that group shared Krishna consciousness with others. You know, um, So when we prejudge, when we think, oh, this person's struggling with that problem, they shouldn't be here. You know, That's the Dhenakasara attitude. Sometimes we have to have boundaries with people when they're disruptive to the community, but we can always be thinking of how can they be engaged you know, in a way that, that works for everybody. Um, all right. So the, the, this brings me to the point of discussion where I ask myself, why, why is it so hard, you know, to overcome these anartas? You would think, you know, even on a material level, that a drug habit would be something that, you know, a person could easily say, you don't want that, that's not a good idea. Right. And yet, you know, everywhere in the world, people struggle with that, you know, and even devotees sometimes struggle with that. Um, and part of that struggle is because we are trying to fix ourselves. Right. Krishna says in Gita, So this divine energy of mind consisting of the three modes of material nature is difficult to overcome, but those who have surrendered unto me can easily cross beyond it, right? So we always have to remember, we don't get rid of our anartas. We don't get rid of the demons in our heart. Krishna does, you know, Balaram, Guru does through the mercy of the spiritual master, the devotees, Prabhupada. And when we have these material desires that are troubling us, um, we need to engage in the process of bhakti yoga, right? But that process is only one part of the cure. The other part is mercy, right? And that's important because otherwise we start thinking I'm the controller, right? I can overcome this demon. I can kill this demon all by myself. I don't need any help. I will just chant perfect japa, right? You know, um, so many times I, I see devotees who are struggling with a material desire and they're, you know, they're getting up earlier and earlier to chant more and more rounds and they're, you know, taking on more and more service and, you know, just throwing themselves into this process and becoming frustrated that that material desire won't go away, right? But as long as I'm thinking I'm getting rid of this material desire, Krishna isn't going to let it go away. Because one of the things Krishna wants is he wants me to understand that I'm depending on him, right? So we have to be patient, right? We have to understand that um, we can't do anything without Krishna, right? So um, this pastime also reinforces that point uh, through Balaram being the one who kills the demon, that the spiritual master, that depending on others, that taking instruction is a hugely important part of spiritual growth. And, and we can't, um, we can't circumvent that. Um, so then, you know, let's, let's break all of this down a little bit more. Uh, why is it so hard for us to, to get this point? And why is it so hard for us to um, surrender our material desires to some spiritual teacher. Okay. Well, one of the problems we have is that we 
our minds, you know, are materially conditioned. And one of the functions of a material, materially conditioned mind is to defend the false ego, right? And the mind does a very good job at this. Krishna says in Gita, Bandhur Atma Atmanastasya, Yenatmaiva Atmanajita, Anatmanastu Shatrutve Vartetatmaiva Shatruvat, right? So for, for one who has conquered the mind, the mind is the best of friends. But for one who has failed to do so, the mind remains the greatest enemy. Right. So, so often our um, thought processes are creating a situation where we are actually defending our anartas. I become attached to my anarta, right? And and I, I saw a really potent example of this in a in a case that I was trying recently. I'm an attorney and I was trying a case and my client is a victim of trauma. And one of the ways in which that trauma manifests for her is when she feels like she's being attacked, she latch, lashes out verbally and she cannot control it. And it's a trauma response. You know, it, it, it was uh, caused by her husband abusing her over years and years. It's not an inherent characteristic, even on a material level. Uh, but she just could not control this, you know, and I, I explained to her about, you know, trauma and, you know, how it affects the brain and all of this and suggested that she might want to talk to somebody about this because it's a, you know, it's an issue that's affecting her life. And no, she didn't want to. What ended up happening in the trial is she had so many outbursts in court that the judge finally said she couldn't testify. She couldn't speak one word you know, because she could not control herself. Uh, we had to settle the case and, you know, she ended up getting, you know, maybe a hundred thousand dollars less than she might've gotten otherwise. So in other words, this inability to control the tongue basically cost her a hundred thousand dollars, right? And so you would think at that point, someone would be able to say, look, this is, this is not a characteristic I wanna hold on to, right? But she did. You know, and she explained to me that it was so important for her to defend herself and, and speak up for herself. And she wasn't sorry that she had done so. And, and, and I, I'm just sitting there bewildered, like, you know, why do you want to keep this characteristic that is alienating people, making you unhappy, costing you money? Why is it so important to keep this? You know, it, 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 to me, it's like carrying around a bag of rocks. Why would you do it? Um, but she's attached. She's attached to this anarta. And it got me to thinking, you know, which is the point of, of observing these things in others. It got me to thinking about what anartas am I holding on to? What anartas am I defending? Right. And for me, a big anarta is being self-righteous. Right. I'm not, I'm not criticizing devotees. I'm not being judgmental. I'm defending Prabhupada's movement. Right. And then I can say all kinds of horrible things about devotees and make all kinds of judgment about devotees because I'm, quote unquote, defending Srila Prabhupada's movement. Right. Um, so those are the kinds of things that come up for me when I meditate on this, this pastime. And it's important for us to introspect like this and to ask ourselves, you know, what are my demons? What am I defending? What am I holding on to that I need to let go of? You know, for me personally, I have to let go of this idea that you know, I'm any kind of a savior. That Prabhupada needs me to judge devotees in order to protect his movement. It's foolishness. When I say it out loud like that, it's foolishness, right? Um, so again, 
understanding my own motives, my own thought process helps me realize that there are many times where I am defending my own demons, right? And I don't have to do that. All right, so we have to look at our minds. We have to um, identify the places where the mind is tricking us, you know, where the mind is defending the false ego and convincing us to hold on to something we don't need to hold on to. Uh, but we also have to learn how to take shelter, right? One reason why is just like seeing the back of your head, you know, you can't get a full picture of your own self by yourself, right? You need feedback. Uh, my tendency to be self-righteous and judgmental, right, isn't always obvious to me. And I'm grateful that my husband is able to point it out to me, you know, and other trusted devotees are able to point these things out to me. Uh, because it gives me the opportunity to practice letting these things go. So we talked about how Lord Balaram in this pastime represents the spiritual master and how the pastime emphasizes the importance of the spiritual master in, in getting rid of the demons in our hearts. Um, but we have to unpack this idea of what it means to have a spiritual master a little bit more. Because it's more than just taking initiation from someone, you know, to, to really have a guru disciple relationship, it has to be a relationship, <laughs> there has to be exchange, right. And we, we often talk about and it's important to talk about the guru disciple relationship in the, the aspect of service, right, and we tend to think of it in terms of active service for the guru, and that's important. Um, but the other aspect that we don't talk about is also important, and that is being genuine and authentic with the spiritual master, right? So a lot of times, and, and I am definitely guilty of this, um, I don't really want other devotees to, to know my faults. And the more I admire and respect them, the less I want them to know about my faults, right? So... I would like my spiritual teachers, my gurus, um, to believe that I'm a pure devotee. You know, and fortunately for me, they already know that's not true, right? Um, but what I have found is if I don't honestly share my struggles with someone who can give me shelter, give me instruction, if I don't honestly share in that way, I will struggle with those faults, right? I have to be able to share them with someone and get some perspective and get some instruction and get some mercy so that I can overcome these things. Um, and we can see in this pastime, the point that when we take our troubles to our guru, whether it's a Diksha or a Shiksha guru, when we take our troubles there, they can easily be overcome. Balaram, he doesn't break a sweat, you know, he doesn't put out any extra effort at all. He just whirls that demon around, throws it in the tree, boom, boss, done, right? So we can struggle and we can struggle and we can struggle. But if we are honest and open and take help from a spiritual teacher, those things can be overcome. All right, so another aspect of this, you know, fighting the demons in our own hearts is that we have to become introspective. And I've talked about this before. Introspection can be painful, right? It's not a great deal of fun to look at the mirror of our heart and realize how dirty it is, 
you know, it's always my, my, my material, materially conditioned, uncontrolled mind always wants to tell me that my heart is not really that dirty, right? So when I look at it and realize it is, there's this moment of, yuck, you know, this is not good, right? And it's painful. Um, but part of the reason why it's painful is because I am identifying with my subtle body, right? And most of us have gotten the concept, I'm not this body on the gross material level, right? But I'm also not the body on the subtle level. You know, my bad habits, my bad propensities, my material, mental condition, none of these are part of who I really am, right? So to take, take a look, stand back and take a look at these things objectively is really important because otherwise I'll just continue to identify with them. I'll continue to think that's who I really am. Um, and, and we see this in this pastime that when Balaram, you know, gets into that forest, he's knocking down trees, right? It, it's a big disruption. It's a big disturbance. It's like a cyclone or a hurricane or something without the water, right? Big deal, right? And we're often so afraid of that emotional pain that we don't want that to happen, right? I don't want to go through the pain of having my faults pointed out to me, right? I don't like that, but it's important. It's an important part of the process. Right. Russell Brand, who's a comedian um, and also, you know, somewhat of a devotee, said something that I thought really made sense in this context. He said that a pain in a broken leg is a signal that you don't stand on that leg. He said pain in the heart is the signal that you need to change the way you live. Right. So when I'm uncomfortable with some aspect of my behavior, when I feel like there's some aspect of myself that I have to hide, you know, um, that's a signal to me that that emotional pain is a signal to me that I have something to work on. Okay. And part of what we do in devotional service, part of the way we grow is to go outside of our comfort zone, right? Take risks for Krishna, do things that we're not inclined to do. Right. And part of that is internal risk and internal pain also. You know, it, it takes a certain kind of courage to, you know, leave Srila Prabhupada and go to England with no resources and, you know, start the Hare Krishna movement in England. That takes courage. Those devotees um, did something amazing and wonderful and were empowered by Krishna and by Srila Prabhupada. Um, but it also takes courage to go within and to, to see the demons in our own heart and, and to ask for help in getting rid of them. That also takes courage. And that's also an important part of serving Guru. So just some additional thoughts at this point, some other thoughts about how we can um, facilitate this process of inviting the spiritual master, inviting Adi Guru into our hearts to kill these demons. You know, one thing is don't take the mind too seriously. The material mind tells us all kinds of crazy things. Um, don't listen, right? We want to reset the mind, right? We, we've gotten into the material habit of finding fault with others, you know, of uh, using our power of discrimination to see what's wrong with everybody else, right? Um, maybe we've gotten into a mindset that I'm so fallen, I can't be saved, right? If people knew what kind of devotee I really was, they wouldn't like me. My spiritual master, if he knew what faults I really have, he wouldn't help me, 
right? Those thoughts are all illusion. Those thoughts are all maya. Those thoughts are all anartas, unwanted things that we want to get rid of. Uh, there's a saying that when, when we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change, right? So we have these tapes that go on in our heads that tell us about the world and about ourselves. And unless, you know, we are already on the platform of goodness, a lot of the things the mind says are destructive and untrue. So we can change those those tapes, those, you know, uh, monologues that the, the mind is telling us. Um, Krishna loves me just the way I am. You know, there's room for everyone in Krishna consciousness. These are the, the tapes. These are the things that we should be playing. Okay. It's okay that we have faults. It's okay that we're not perfect. My spiritual master, Mukunda Goswami, tells me, reminds me frequently that trying to be perfect is trying to be Krishna because Krishna is the only one who's perfect, right? So the idea that we have faults, that we have anartas, that we need to get rid of, right? That shouldn't be a surprise. Everyone does, right? And there's no, there's no shame in admitting it. The shame might be in failing to admit it and holding on to that anartha. Um, but this process, this process of revealing our hearts, of exposing our weaknesses and asking for help, it requires a place where people are not going to judge us. And I, I do believe that within ISKCON, we could do a much better job of creating these safe places uh, where there is no judgment, right? And I don't mean no discrimination, right? If someone comes to me and says they have a drug habit, I'm going to tell them they need to stop taking drugs and they need to take certain steps in order to do that, right? But I'm not going to tell them they're not a devotee and they can't, they're not a good person, that they can't practice Krishna consciousness. You know, that's the difference. Um, so when we look at a devotee's weakness and we want to reject them from the society of devotees, you know, or somehow see them as less than ourselves, that's the Dhanakasura mindset. You know, that's that envious material mindset that wants to keep. Krishna consciousness for ourselves and for those who are like us, those we can relate to. When we judge others, most of the time, it's a distraction from looking at ourselves. You know, I, I someone suggested to me years ago, and I find it very useful that when I'm feeling judgmental towards somebody about a particular thing, I should think about how does that thing manifest in me? Because most of the time I will find that I'm judging them because they have a quality that I don't like in myself or they have a quality that I've been traumatized by in the past. You know, it's not about that devotee as much as it is about myself and my past experience. So whenever we feel that impulse to judge others, um, we can turn that around and ask what's going on with me? Why is this creating this, this reaction in my heart? You know, why am I feeling angry? Why am I feeling victimized? Um, because that's that's all we can do. We can change our own heart. We're not here to, you know, change and judge others. It may be your service to give somebody guidance and feedback. If you're a parent or a teacher or a guru or, you know, a manager, that may be your service, you know, to help that person with that issue. But it's never, never our service 
to assess whether others are worthy of being part of a community of devotees or part of um, part of the Krishna consciousness movement, have access to Krishna consciousness. Uh, it doesn't mean you know, that dangerous people shouldn't have limits on their behavior in our communities, right? That absolutely needs to happen. But even those people who we find need to be restricted because of some dangerous behavior, they're still devotees. They still have a relationship with Krishna, right? And they still are eventually going to overcome that terrible anarta that caused them to be dangerous in the first place. Bhagavan Swami tells a, an experience that kind of highlights the point about not being judgmental and, and being able to help others when they're struggling. Um, he took a few thousand devotees on a yatra, as, as he frequently does, and they went to a beach, right? And there's a riptide at this beach, and a riptide is a tide that's very strong and it will pull you out farther, pull you under the water and pull you out farther. So the devotees were warned, don't, you know, don't swim here, be very careful, there's a riptide, don't go out, you know, um, too far. And of course, <laughs> anybody who's managed devotees knows that if there's a rule, some devotee is gonna break it, <laughs> you know, and, and a devotee went out too far and he got caught in the riptide, right? And he had to call for help, right? So, no one could swim out there. You know, it's too dangerous. No one can reach him from the shore. But what the devotees did was, you know, they held hands. You know, devotees on the beach hold the hands of the devotees stepping into the water and someone steps farther and they held hands and they created a human chain till they could reach the devotee who was in the riptide, pull him back to safety. Right? And, and that pastime was just so striking for me because, number one, our tendency you know, when, when we have a devotee in trouble is to say, well, they shouldn't have, right? You know, somebody's struggling with some anarta. Well, they shouldn't have done this. They shouldn't have done that. They created the situation themselves and they're getting what they deserve. They're getting their karma, right? That's not how we should treat a family member. And devotees are, are, are our family members, right? So these, these devotees, nobody stopped and said, oh, foolish him. He went out into the riptide after we told him not to. No, they immediately leaped to help him, right? And he's willing to ask for help. You know, he's out there drowning. He's not trying to pretend everything's cool. He's screaming for help. And then the community works together. No one person can save this person, but by working together, they can all save him. And so many times when devotees are struggling, that's actually the situation. They've done something foolish. They need help they, and they need to ask for it. They need to feel like if they ask for it, they're going to get help. And none of us individually can fix the problem, but maybe all of us working together can, can help that devotee. And certainly by creating a supportive, warm, non-judgmental atmosphere, we can definitely help devotees who are struggling, right? Um, when we look at a, at a devotee who's struggling, we're seeing one snapshot moment in their life, right? But we're not seeing where they're headed. We're not seeing who they're going to become, right? So there are points in many devotees' lives, many of our respected leaders, there are points in their lives where you might think, you know, this devotee really isn't worth a whole lot, right? But then later in life, it manifests. 
right? They come, they come back from their struggle, they overcome their obstacle, and we see how powerful and inspiring and wonderful they are, right? Every devotee is in that situation. You know, we just don't are not going to see maybe their full manifestation in this lifetime. But every single one of us is on that path to serving Krishna in a way that inspires other others. Every single one of us is important in that way. And a lot of times helping devotees requires personal investment of time and energy. Right. One of the things that frustrates me about sharing Krishna consciousness is you can't mass produce it. <laughs> you know, we can we can use technology and different techniques, you know, to, to reach out, to touch people's lives, to engage them and hopefully bring them in. But once you've got somebody who's actively on a spiritual path, you know, you, you, bhakti passes from heart to heart. Right. So there has to be some personal relationship with someone. And sometimes we put energy and effort into a devotee um, and we don't feel like we're getting the right reciprocation, you know, or we're thinking, you know, so much energy and effort into this. And I just, I don't know if it's bearing any fruit. You know, I don't see them overcoming the obstacle we're talking about. Um, but we have to remember this is a long-term investment. Part of what we're doing and part of what others do for us, right, is planting the seeds that are going to grow into the, the fruits and flowers that are going to help us make advancement, right? Preparing the ground for someone else to plant that seed, right? So all we can do is support each other, help each other, um, and help the community by trying to become the best devotee we can be. Ultimately, what the pastime of Dinogasura is telling us is that there's room for everyone in Krishna consciousness. You know, there's a place for everyone and Krishna wants a personal relationship with every single one of us. Um, that the spiritual master is there to help and that we don't have to live with these anartas in the heart, with these demons in the heart. Because living with these demons, it's painful, right? Envy is one of the most painful emotions that I've ever experienced, you know? Um, so learning to let go of that, understanding that this is not a necessary, you know, aspect of who I am, um, is a great relief. I think one of the points that we often miss or one of the aspects of devotional service that we often miss is um, Krishna loves us. Krishna loves us intensely and deeply. I don't have to become pure so that Krishna will love me. I don't have to become pure so that my guru will love me or Srila Prabhupada will love me. That love is already there. The process of purification is to allow me to reciprocate with that love. Right. So taking from, um, from this pastime, understanding this pastime um, allows us to understand that it's okay that there are demons in our hearts. You know, it's expected. It's normal, right? But the thing to do is not to protect them. The thing to do is to ask for help in getting rid of them, 
right? And sooner or later in Krishna's time, not in my time, but in Krishna's time, you know, these, these demons are going to be easily overcome, right? Lord Balaram's just going to toss them right out of our hearts. Right? And that in the process, you know, of working and waiting for this change, um, we can support each other rather than tear each other down. So that's all I have. <laughs> um, if there are questions or comments, you know, I would love to hear them. Such an inspiring class, Radha Prabhu. I've just totally absorbed. And if you look at the comments we're getting in, so many devotees are thanking you. There's a devotee saying, thank you for sharing your story. It had really touched me and helped me with my own difficulties in the path of Krishna consciousness. Such practical advice um, and connecting it to the pastime of Nidika was really, really amazing. Thank you so much. There's another devotee from YouTube that's saying very inspiring class with a lot of practical applications to better our devotional life. We so appreciate your you coming and joining us uh, on the GBC SPT platform and sharing your wonderful realizations. I, and I, I, will, I, would, I would like to respond you know, to the devotee who was talking about his struggles. I don't think we talk about our struggles enough. You know, and I know on the one hand, we don't want to discourage those who are junior to us or, or maybe just starting out with the idea that, oh, 30 years in Christian consciousness, I'm still struggling. You know? um, but I think it is important to know that, yes, struggling is part of this process, right? You know, Balaram shakes those trees. Sometimes it's not a comfortable feeling. And one of the most inspiring experiences I had was in the context of me being at my lowest spiritual ebb. You know, there was a, a point at which my husband and I were living outside of the community of devotees, uh, which I don't recommend. <laughs> and I was really having trouble with chanting Japa. I was, you know, really having trouble maintaining sadhana and spiritual focus because I was just in so much material association. And the one thing that just really, you know, felt right and inspiring and that I was inclined to do, not forcing myself to do, was to put flowers on, on our altar. You know, very, very, very simple, you know, five minute service. But there was so much reciprocation with the deities. Lord Nityananda was just so present, right? And that was one of the things that made me realize that bhakti really is about causeless mercy, right? It's not that I was in great shape and I was chanting great japa and you know doing nice service. I was a mess. But Lord Nityananda was still, you know, giving love, giving inspiration. So if you're struggling, take heart. It's part of the process. Krishna loves you. Beautiful, beautiful. Somehow just being connected, even if it's with the string, uh, any little service that we can yeah. do and being association of even one devotee that yeah. can guarantee the success of our lives. Yeah. Thank you so much. Such wonderful deep realizations. And I referred to the chapter of Kidding of the Inukasura's 14th. It's actually the 15th chapter. Yeah. And um, such wonderful deep insights. I want to thank you for joining us again on the SPT platform, and we hope we can have you back again soon. And thank you so much to all our viewers for your you know, encouragement, your participation, your comments. 
Uh, if you've missed any of these series, they are available on Facebook and YouTube. Please take a moment to subscribe to the GBC SBT YouTube channel, uh, follow our Facebook page. You can also subscribe to our newsletter uh, if you log on to gbcspt.com and you can subscribe to the newsletter, be updated about all our upcoming events. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining. Shil Prabhupada ki jai. I want to take a minute to thank our technical support here, Anantashesh Prabhu, for all the way staying up late in Mayapur <laughs> and helping us um, stream this wonderful, wonderful lecture. Thank you so much, Anantashesh Prabhu. Hare Krishna. Jai. Hare Krishna. Thank you again. Hare Krishna.